Scripture today is from Ruth, chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, For you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime Boaz said to her, Come here, and eat some bread, and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, 
you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young woman of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you didn't get your work out this week, now you've had it. That's a big piece of text. We've got a lot to cover this morning, so let's jump right in and uh, begin with a word of prayer. Can I invite you to pray with me? Father in heaven, you are there and you are not silent. And I pray that to each of us this morning, you would not be silent, but you would speak to our hearts words that we we believe, we receive, we hear, and words that uh, touch and transform our lives. Lord, um, work your will with each of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this is uh, the third of a five-part series in the book of Ruth that we're doing. And as Jake told us when he introduced the, uh, the series, the first message, that this, this book of Ruth is set in the time of the judges. Chapter 1, verse 1 begins with these words, In the days when the judges ruled. Now, if you're at all familiar with the book of Judges, this is not the high point of uh, Israel's history. This is a very low, very dark um, period of time in the history of Israel. It's a time, really, that is marked by violence and by war and by strife and by sin and lawlessness. It reminds me a little bit of how, you know, Hollywood might portray in one of those gritty, you know, westerns, how Hollywood might portray, um, you know, the Wild West, you know, with with bandits and villains everywhere. And, uh, you know, the book of Ruth says a few times that there's, there's no king in Israel. We might say there's no sheriff in Dodge, and everyone does what is right in their own eyes. There's kind of a, the book of Judges is really living on the edge of anarchy. And, and in that setting, at that time in Israel's history, comes the book of Ruth. And what a contrast. I mean, Ruth is... Um, Ruth is pastoral. Ruth is pleasant. It's it's quiet. And uh, and I think that we're meant to see this as a welcome contrast to a dark period in Israel's history. The the really the story of Ruth is the the beautiful story of how God's kindness brings a harvest of hope out of personal tragedy. That's, that's the book of Ruth in a, in a nutshell. How God's kindness brings a harvest of hope out of, out of tragedy. And so I, I hope that this morning this will have a word of encouragement and to, of hope to all of us. Um, if you've read the book of Ruth, which I hope you've done several times now, it, you'll notice that it kind of it, it reads at two levels. Um, there's the level uh, on the surface of sort of regular people, we might say, facing 
common problems that people face kind of living ordinary lives. And then there's this other level where we discern, as we said last week, we can discern the hidden hand of God at work. And and as we pay attention to this other level and we see how the book of Ruth functions in the bigger history of Israel and uh, the church and the whole scriptures, we can see that God is really governing all things, even the ordinary lives of regular people, in order to bring about his good and glorious purposes in the world. That's that second level. And to read Ruth properly, we, we have to understand both levels of the story. We have to see that hidden hand of providence working behind things that we might think are are more everyday, mundane, ordinary, regular. And so that's a a heads up to us because I think, well, I know that the author really wants us to take that perspective on board. If all you can see are the daily comings and goings of your life, you're missing something profound. You are... If, if the only time you can see God is when you're at church or reading your Bible or praying, you're missing, you're missing almost everything. The, the, the writer of Ruth wants us to catch both of those levels of the story and, and transcribe them to our own lives. Yeah, there's coming and going and paying bills and... Uh, changing diapers and you know, making meals, making meals, making meals, laundry. I'm just, I'm just feeling for my wife right now. Laundry, laundry, making meals, laundry. There's a lot of that. And we've talked about this. But behind that, there's something much more powerful going on. The hidden hand of God is at work, even in changing diapers, making meals, and doing laundry. I promise you that. We need to see the way that the, the, the book of Ruth communicates that to us. So I have uh, sort of three things I want to discover with you this morning as we look at this passage that Stephen just read. And it's an amazing passage, really. Um, consider this. Everything there that we just read, except for verse 23, everything happens on one day in and around Bethlehem. And everything that happens really happens to three people doing three things. So that's my outline. Thankfully, that's, that's what we see here in the, in the passage. Three people doing three things. First, Ruth gleans. Second, Boaz favors. And third, Naomi believes. So that's my outline this morning, if you're taking notes. First, Ruth gleans. Second, Boaz favors. And third, Naomi believes. Let's begin at point number one, Ruth gleans. And this is important. This is one of those moments where we need to to pay attention to the way the author is shaping the, the text, the narrative, because... The author tells us something here in verse 1 that Ruth and Naomi don't realize yet. In, in, in 
Ruth chapter 2, verse 1, we get this crucial piece of information. It says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now we will see shortly that Boaz is absolutely key to the whole story. He is a key character that what he does affects the whole outcome of the story. And it's important for us to see that he is a relative of Ruth's late husband. And not only that, but he's a worthy man. He's a quality guy. The NIV says he is a man of stature. Boaz is respected. Boaz is the kind of guy, he's a godly man. Boaz is a a pillar in the community in Bethlehem and the area around it. People know Boaz, not because he's full of himself, but because he's such a quality guy. And so this is what we learn about Boaz right up front. And we are in the know, and Naomi and Ruth haven't discovered this yet. They're going to in a few verses. So look at verse 2. Ruth the Moabite says to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Naomi said to Ruth, Go, my daughter. So consider this. Last week we saw that Naomi, her husband has died. Her boys have died. Ruth's a widow. She's childless after 10 years. And she goes with Naomi to Bethlehem. And they arrive together and they have nothing. They're living on the edge of of life itself. They're in a difficult place. They have no money. They have no food. They they probably have a, a few possessions and the clothes on their back. That's it. They are in a desperate situation. And thankfully, as we heard last week, it's the beginning of the barley harvest. That's the last verse of chapter 1. And so Ruth realizes We've got to strike while the iron is hot here. We cannot lose the opportunity. And so Ruth is a go-getter. She gets up early. She gets a jump on the day. And she goes to her mother-in-law and asks for permission to go glean. Now, this is not... um, She's not aiming really high here. She's not trying to get a corporate job. Um, She's not pushing out the resumes and sending out emails and everything. There's, There's almost zero options you either do this or you die. And so, you know, she's not, hey, I know, I want to be a gleaner. You know, this isn't a career move. This is a we-need-to-live move. And so um, her mother-in-law says, go. Now, here's the way we need to think about gleaning. Gleaning is ancient social welfare. There's no social welfare checks. The government is not sending everybody without a job who, you know, is in a tough way. You know, here's some money to help you find lodging and and food. This is ancient social welfare. And it was written into the very 
laws of Israel. God made provision for people like Naomi and Ruth. Here's what Leviticus 19 verses 9 to 10 says. This is the Lord speaking. He says, when you reap, he's speaking to the Israelites, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am Yahweh, your God. See, God commanded the people of Israel not to harvest every square inch of their field, not to try and squeeze out every buck. Because he wanted them to leave something behind. If somebody was gleaning and they dropped something, God said, leave it there, keep going. In fact, other laws say you can only pass over your field to harvest once. Can't go again. Because everything that you don't take is designed by God to help people that are on the margins, widows and orphans and sojourners. It's designed to help them not starve to death. This is ancient social welfare. Look at verses Uh, Verse 19.10, it says why. It gives the reason for all of this. I am the Lord your God. Why should Israel, why should we care about the poor? Why should we care about the foreigner? Why should we care about those who are at risk and have less than we do? Widows. Why should we care about the refugee? Here it is. The character of God. The character of God should motivate us to care. We should care because God cares. That's important. Listen to Deuteronomy 10. This is the NIV. It says, He, the Lord, defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. God cares. And he loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. We could go off on that one a lot, but this is important. And and we worship the same God. Caring about those who are less fortunate is not an option if you are a Christian. So Ruth, see, remember last week, Ruth has bound herself wholeheartedly to the God of Israel. And what does Ruth do? Naomi gives her permission to go, and she goes. She steps out in faith, hoping that she's going to find favor by being allowed to glean. Now remember, this is the time of the judges. Everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. Do you think people are obeying Leviticus 19? No. Everybody, if you can make an extra $10,000 or shekels, you know, they're doing it, aren't they? And so she goes out, she goes out in faith, hoping that she'll find favor 
to glean, to get enough. Her survival and the survival of her mother-in-law hangs in the balance here. Look at verses 3 and 4. So it says, Ruth set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. I love it. The author tells us that um, Ruth goes out and she just happens to end up gleaning in the field belonging to Boaz. She just happens in this particular field. Now literally, the author, it's lost in our translations here, but the author is exaggerating the point. Literally, the author says, it just happened to happen or it just chanced to chance that this is this is what happened this is where she ended up gleaning see the the author doesn't believe the author is not suggesting to us that there's anything like chance or luck involved the author is saying that where she ended up seemed like just where she ended up to her But really, we're meant to see the hidden hand of God at work. This is the hidden hand of God guiding Ruth right into Boaz's field. One commentator says, commentating on verses 3 and 4, This was all part of a higher plan. It was nothing less than a divine appointment that brought Ruth to the fields of Boaz. There was no angelic visions to direct her to the right field or voices from heaven to guide her. Nevertheless, as she trusted in the Lord, he directed her steps unwittingly to exactly the right location. Now, I don't know about you, but that really speaks to me, because I know that you'll find this hard to believe, but angels do not visit me every morning and tell me what I need to do. I don't hear, you know, the voice of God splitting the clouds and coming down and saying, you know... I won't even go there. Isn't this where we all live? We trust God and we do what's right. We trust God and we do what what we believe is wise and good and right and best. And isn't it amazing where he directs our, our path? I mean, this has happened to you, right? that you discover where God has been leading, all along you get to that place, you cannot believe it. And then you look back and, and you see the hand, don't you? You look back and you see through random events, God's leading and guiding and, and nudging It's amazing. And we are meant to, to see our lives the way that he is describing here the life of Ruth. And not only has God been guiding Ruth, it seems, that God is also guiding Boaz. He just happens to show up at his field, this field, this time, right now. Oh, 
just happens to be, I know, I'll go down and inspect how the harvest is doing. Look at verses 5 to 7. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. Everybody knows the stories we heard last week. The whole place when they returned, the whole, all of Bethlehem was a buzz. Verse 7, She said, Ruth said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. We're beginning to see that not only is Boaz a worthy man, but Ruth is a worthy woman. These two belong together. They're made for each other. This is a match made in heaven, literally. And it seems as though the first impressions are pretty positive, doesn't it? You know, it's becoming a love story. And that brings us really to my second point, Boaz favors. We've considered Ruth gleans, now Boaz favors. You see, this is where the the story gets focused because Boaz's favor toward Ruth is not only key to the whole story working out. Let me... Let's just raise the ante a little here. Boaz's favor towards Ruth is key for the accomplishment of all of God's redemptive purposes in history through Jesus Christ. This might be an important moment in the fields outside of Bethlehem. Let me just repeat that because it's true. This is a key moment and Boaz's favor toward Ruth is going to determine the outworking of God's redemptive purposes for all mankind through Jesus Christ. Do you know why I say that? It's because Boaz and Ruth show up together in Matthew 1 in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. If this doesn't happen, that doesn't happen. Let's trust God with the details, shall we? Let's trust God that there's a hidden hand. Let's just get before him, confess our faith in him, repent of our sin and our unbelief, trust him afresh every day, and go into the world believing, just believing that he goes with you, he goes before you, he goes behind you. And even the things that happen to us that seem like mistakes and problems, Even those are from him too. Well, let me get back to the story. You know, I'd love for this story to be simpler, but it's just not. Because, you know, this is, we can just feel the love story is about to happen, right? You know, and they're about to, to go and live happily ever after. But that's, it's not that easy, folks. Because before we can see Boaz favoring Ruth the way he does, we've got to understand that there is a major, a serious obstacle to that favor. There is a a big obstacle to Boaz just favoring Ruth the way he's going to in a few minutes. This just doesn't, you know, kind of happen easily. Because 
Boaz knew and every Israelite knew that the, the obstacle is Ruth's ethnicity. It's, we've heard many times so far in the story that, that Ruth is a Moabite. And this isn't a racist thing. This is a, 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 an ethnic thing between Israel and the Moabites. This is a huge problem. How big is the problem? Let me lay Deuteronomy 23 on you. This is a major problem. Listen to Deuteronomy 23, verses 3 to 6. Get ready. No Ammonite or Moabite, this is God speaking, no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Why? Because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all the days of your life forever. I'm just a bit negative. I mean, there's a lot of bad blood. We could, we could look at, and Jake told you about this the first weekend. There's a lot of bad blood between the Israelites and the Moabites. And because they hired um, Balaam to curse them, and because when the Israelites were coming through the wilderness and trying to get into the promised land, God told them to go and feed them and bring them food and water, and they wouldn't do it. They'd rather see them die in the desert. And so because of these arch enemies, the, the, the Moabites are arch enemies, God issues this, this curse, this condemnation upon them. They're never ever to enter the assembly of the Lord. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. So what happens? What does Boaz do? Well, look at verses 8 and 9, back in Ruth. Then Boaz said to Ruth, and again, keep keep that, that passage, that Deuteronomy 23 in mind, Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. So in a nutshell, in a nutshell, here's what the favor of Boaz looks like. It's respect, it's protection, and it's provision. He respects her. He calls her my daughter. A very affectionate, caring term. This is not, the love isn't happening yet. He, this, is, this is a term of endearment and respect and care. He calls her my daughter. He respects Ruth. Secondly, he protects her. He, inter, he, he implements the first workplace anti-sexual harassment policy. He does. 
He protects her. And thirdly, he provides for Ruth. He gives her barley and water, and we're about to see he gives her a whole lot more. So he respects her, he protects her, and he provides for her. Now, let me just say that in in a world of Harvey Weinstein's and the Me Too thing, I want to say this very loud and clear, particularly to the guys. The church, the church should be the safest place on earth. The church must be the safest place on earth for women and for girls and for people who are vulnerable. There's good, this is a, a hard line for us. We'll have no problem driving away wolves that come in among us to exploit those who are vulnerable. And the church needs to be that kind of place. The church needs to be a safe place. Boaz assessed the risks and he took the necessary steps to ensure that Ruth was going to be safe. And I believe it is the responsibility of every worthy man in the church to do the same, to proactively create a climate and a context where women are respected and protected. If you, ladies, if you do not feel respected and protected here, come and talk to me. So Boaz showed Ruth this amazing favor. Look at verse 10. Look at her response. And then she fell on her face bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? And we'll look at Ruth's, the answer to Ruth's question, why have I found favor in your eyes in a minute? But right now, I want to focus on Ruth's response, Ruth's reaction to the favor that she has just been shown because this is a model for all of us. See, unlike most people today, Ruth had absolutely no sense of entitlement. Zero. Nada. Zip. She had no sense at all that she was entitled to be shown the favor that Boaz has just shown her. She didn't think that anybody owed her anything. And we, on the other hand, We kind of expect, you know, kind of even demand it, don't we? We expect that people are always going to be kind and courteous to us, right? Just drive in Vancouver traffic, and what happens if somebody cuts you off? Oh, that's okay. I don't expect anything. You go. No. I was driving with Brett the other day, and somebody did that. He's he's driving as the passenger. He reaches over. (laughs) I said, Brett, get your hand off the steering wheel. It's okay. He did it in in faith, I'm sure. But isn't it true? We get upset when people don't respect us, don't show us the regard that we know you ought to have. 
We insist that people respect our rights and treat us as equals. And you know what? We'll probably launch a social media campaign or uh, a lawsuit if you don't. But Ruth is so different from us, and we need to learn from her. Ruth expresses this just this total sense of unworthiness. She falls on her face, and she bows to the ground. She cannot believe what's happening to her. And here's the thing. This is so important. Here's the thing. Proud people never feel amazed when they're treated favorably. Proud people never say thank you. Humble people are always thankful. Proud people never feel amazed when people treat them well because they think they deserve it. They they assume, of course I deserve this. Proud people, and that's why proud people are incapable of understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because grace to them is not amazing, it's expected. And so the question we need to be asking ourselves is, am I now and continually and often, am I amazed at the favor that God has shown me? That's a test, folks. That's a test of whether we are basically proud or truly humble. We don't maybe need to get on our face, although maybe that's an appropriate response. But are we amazed? Are you amazed at the grace of God toward you, or do you just expect it? One of the most functional verses for me in the whole Bible is, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The number one area I know I need to grow in, and perhaps some of you need to grow in, is humility. Humility is your best friend. Pride is spiritual cancer. And one of the ways we know that we're growing in the former and putting to death the latter is that grace is amazing to you. You stand in awe. You can hardly take it in that God has shown you the favor that He has shown you in Christ. Boaz is the human face of God's grace to Ruth. (laughs) He's the favor of God toward this foreigner. The favor that ultimately looks forward to and anticipates the grace of God revealed to us in the face of Jesus Christ who suffered and died and rose again to reconcile us to God. That is grace. We were exiles and aliens. We were poor and near to death. We were dead, actually, dead in sin. And Jesus Christ came into the mess that was our lives and woke us up, raised us up, made us alive together with Christ. And if we know this grace, if we're amazed by this grace, then how are we? This is the next question. How are we being the face of God's grace to each other, to our neighbor? to our colleague, to our co-worker. How are we being the face of God's grace to other people? That's a crucial question. We can't ignore it. 
Well, let's answer the question now that Ruth asks, why have I found favor? Because it stands to reason, given Deuteronomy 23, that Boaz could have easily just said, you know, um, can you move on? Can you just kind of get away from my field? Give her, make her somebody else's problem, right? And so why? Why did he show the grace? Is it, you know, somebody might think, well, love won out. You know, he just kind of threw aside his commitment to the Bible and the scriptures and to the laws of God. And, well, I'm, she's so cute. You know, that might, that's happened. I've done too much pastoral ministry to not realize that this is a frequent reason why people give up their commitment to what the Bible clearly teaches. Because, well, she's just so cute or he's just so hunky and handsome. That's not what's going on here. So why did he do it? I have four reasons very quickly. First of all, God everywhere in the Bible commands that his people show mercy to widows over and over and over again. I've got a whole bunch of texts here, but it's getting late and I can't give them to you. God commands that his people show mercy, show favor to the widows and the orphans and the poor, and the under, uh, and the at risk. So that's one. That's number one. Number two, Boaz knows what we know, that he is this woman's kinsman, her his her relative, and he knows that he has a a an obligation as a family member to her and to her dead husband. He knows that, and we're about to see what a big difference that'll make next week. Third point, Boaz gives us the reason in verses 11 and 12. Here's what he says. He answers her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz recognizes something very important here. Boaz no longer looks at Ruth as a Moabite. He looks at her as an Israelite. She's taken refuge under the wings of Almighty God. And that's changed her completely. No matter what people might say she is, he sees her for who she really is now. He sees what God has done in her and through her. We'll look at more of that next week. I can't help but see this, that Boaz's view of Ruth, the way it has changed from her being a Moabite to an Israelite. It's interesting that uh, Boaz never refers to Ruth as a Moabite. He does once at the end of the book. We'll look at that, but it's quite strategic why he does that. But she's not a Moabite in his eyes. She's an Israelite. And it makes me think of what, what Paul the Apostle says in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says, Jesus Christ has died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And then he says, From now on, therefore, 
we regard no one according to the flesh. This should inform the way we look at each other in the church. We should regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is a foretaste of that new way of seeing people. And Boaz, Boaz saw it. Changed, it, it. It changed his approach to her completely. Now there's one more reason, the fourth reason, that I think Boaz showed such favor toward Ruth. And that we find it in that genealogy in Matthew 1. And it's because Boaz's mother was Rahab the Canaanite prostitute. You see, Boaz knows that that God is a God who welcomes foreign women with questionable histories. In fact, it's not just women, it's women and men. God welcomes the worst. For all those, no matter what they've done, what their track record is, as sullied and as ugly and as embarrassing and as shameful as it is, everyone who takes refuge in the Lord is welcomed. Everyone. No one has ever gone to the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ and humbly knelt down knowing their need, pleading for God's grace upon them and not discovered it. I am running out of time. I've got to move on to my final point. Naomi believes. Verses 17 and 19. So she gleaned, Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. And her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. They had eaten the end of last verse 15. And where they uh, and her mother-in-law said to her, "Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you." So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, "The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz." So Ruth returns. She's got maybe 30 liters of grain. I mean, she's 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 strong. There's no way I could carry that. And she brings back to her mother-in-law all of this provision. God has done more for them in a day than they might have hopefully expected in a month. And there's all this provision. They're going to be looked after for a long time. And she asks, where did you glean? Not, not so, where did you glean today? But where did you glean? Where did you get all of this? We're set. And Ruth answers, the man with whom I work today is Boaz. And that's the moment the light comes on for Naomi. The penny drops. She remembers. Her bitterness just vanishes. A light comes on, a light of hope, a light of grace. 
God is up to something. I was too bitter. I didn't see it. I I couldn't see the hand and the provision of God anywhere. I had forgotten completely about Boaz. And now she hears his name and she begins to put the pieces of the puzzle together. Look at verse 20. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours. She's already planning. One of our redeemers. She's already planning the reception. You can just see Naomi connects the favor of Boaz to the kindness of God. She says, whose kindness, it's God's kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. That's that word we looked at last week, hesed, that that loyalty, that kindness, that grace, that steadfast love. It's, It's that covenant commitment. Finally, she sees it. Well, I have to wrap this up, but you know, here's a woman who just a day or so before was bitter and empty. And now she is full and pleasant. She's Naomi all over again. And that's all because of one thing. The steadfast love of the Lord that never, ever ceases and the mercy that comes from Him that knows no end. That's that's what's going on in this whole story. God's the main character of the whole story. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your your steadfast love. We thank you that you've looked upon us in favor, in mercy, in forgiveness, in reconciliation, that we might this morning have hope and be amazed, be amazed that you've sought us and you've saved us and you've adopted us. Lord, may may we be a people who are amazed continually at your grace. A humble people who, who get the gospel. Father, grant us to grow in these things, to grow in a deeper appreciation for the hope that we have in Christ and to see that you have been working out this blessing for us and for all people everywhere even from before the foundations of the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.